The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 17th episode of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Redis. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I have been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. So, and as always, I, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very, very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. Sound familiar? I figured it might. I go there. I go there all the time. And they have much more than just recaps of the show. They cover all kinds of cybersecurity news. They profile incidents of the week. They list upcoming events. They have some really cool white papers you might want to check out. It's just a really cool site in general. So the media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So the feedback about last week's show was great. It was just awesome. For our first-time listeners out there, the difference maker between Task Force 7 Radio and other cybersecurity podcasts is that we come to you with credibility. And when you listen to us as, as opposed to other podcasts, you're not going to feel like you just popped an Ambien sitting by the fire reading Wall Street Journal while you're listening to Jim Nance call the PBA tour on CBS. All right? That's not going to happen. If you want to listen to a show with credibility and you want to listen to a show that keeps your attention, and if you're tired of the fakers out there, and you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about? There's a lot of fakers out there in cybersecurity. As soon as everyone saw that there was money to be made, everybody's a cybersecurity expert all of a sudden. If you're tired of the fakers out there, this is the show for you. So aside from hearing us on, on Voice America Business Channel, one of the easiest ways you can listen to playbacks of different episodes of the show is to go to www.taskforce7radio.com and you hit the Episodes tab. Just go to TaskForce7Radio.com, hit the Episodes tab, and once you're there, you could easily scroll through every episode of Task Force 7 Radio that has been aired on Voice America. And it's that easy. The site's easy to navigate. We're improving it all the time. And it's a great place to visit and learn more about TF7 and our guests. And don't forget, for your convenience, you can also find all prior Task Force 7 Radio episodes for playback on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com and Player.fm. It's literally impossible not to be able to find us. And if you want to make it simple, you just scroll through your options. Just, just Google us at Task Force 7 Radio and all your options will come right up. So, and last but not least, we're all over social media. So no matter what your favorite social media platform is, we probably have a presence. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. And please, if you're a big fan of the show, whether you're on iTunes or just one of, on one of our podcast sites or one of our social media sites, 
please help us to get the word out by leaving a review and giving us five stars. That's five stars, five big ones. I appreciate it. We have another great show for you today. And in light of us celebrating Data Privacy Day yesterday here in the United States, which was Sunday, January 28th, and many other countries around the world celebrating the same thing, we're going to have a special guest on tonight. It's Dr. Rebecca Wynn. She's on for the second and third segments of the show. So Dr. Rebecca Wynn is widely considered to be a big picture thinker. She brings about 20 years of experience to the table in the information security, assurance, and technology spaces. And recently, she led the information security, privacy, and compliance pre-acquisition, acquisition, acquisition, and post-acquisition of LearnVest Incorporated to Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, which is, of course, a Fortune 100 company. So she's very, very well known for being a gifted polymath, which means she has subject matter expertise in several areas. And she has a deep understanding of current cybersecurity challenges and data privacy issues. And that's why we're having her on tonight. So she's got a proven track record of taking companies to the next level of excellence in many sectors, many different sectors, including government, finance, fintech, healthcare, information technology, legal, semiconductors, and even retail, which makes her a great guest for the show. And everyone out there can probably have something that they can can relate to her about. So she's a rock star in the data privacy space. Dr. Wynn was named the 2017 Cybersecurity Professional of the Year, sponsored by the Cybersecurity Excellence Awards. And she's also won the SC Magazine's Chief Privacy Officer of the Year Award in 2017. So she is a Global Privacy and Security by Design International Council member. And we'll get into what exactly that means with her later on the show. She's got dozens of published writings on cybersecurity, and she has garnered about 16,000 followers on LinkedIn in just 12 months since joining the social network. Thousands of women look up to her as a role model, and I'm really excited to have her on the show. Now, as I said, Dr. Wynn is going to be with us for the second and third segments of the show, and I would be remiss if I had such an accomplished and senior female cybersecurity professional on the show and didn't ask her about the talent war and the enormous problems we're having attracting women into the cybersecurity space. So for the second segment, I'm going to ask her to chime in on women in cybersecurity, women in technology. And for the third segment, I'm going to ask her some questions on data privacy in light of everyone celebrating Data Privacy Day yesterday in the United States and some other countries around the world. So stay tuned. We're going to have a great show for you tonight. So it's Super Bowl week in America, big week here in the United States. We get ready for the Philadelphia Eagles to take on the New England Patriots on Super Bowl Sunday this weekend in balmy Minnesota. So the good news is the game is indoors. And for Super Bowl fans attending the game in person, I'm sure that's a major, major plus, right? So, you know, it it just seems like everybody has a roof on their stadium. You know, I look around at the NFL, it's like there's roofs everywhere. Everyone's playing indoors in these very cold climates. But the New York Giants... They don't, have, they don't have anything indoors. They don't have a roof. You know, being that I'm from New York, I, I get frustrated with the fact that it would seem we're, like we're one of the only cold-weather teams in the league that can spend $1 billion on a new stadium that ends up being worse than the old stadium and has no roof. A billion dollars and you're still freezing your ass off. I mean, they managed to architect it so that it feels like you're sitting in Antarctica during a hurricane. You know, winds that accentuate the cold weather to make it so uncomfortable I mean, after the season they've had, just mentioning their name gets me all wound up. But let me get back on track. So back to the Super Bowl. Very little in the way of cybersecurity talk 
for the Super Bowl this year. Very, very little. I haven't seen too many uh, people on TV talking about cybersecurity around the Super Bowl, not too many articles about it. I really haven't seen anything out there talking about a heightened sense of awareness around cybersecurity for the Super Bowl this year like we did over the last two years. So it's been relatively quiet, at least publicly. And quite honestly, that might not be a bad thing. So as long as, as someone's on point for making sure that a logical attack on the event can't be used to facilitate or enhance any type of kinetic attack on the most watched and anticipated event of the year for the United States of America, and I'm quite sure the professionals are on the job. So the Super Bowl has been designated as a National Special Security Event, or an NSSE. So an NSSE is an event of national or international significance deemed by the United States Department of Homeland Security to be a potential target for terrorism or other criminal activity. So these events have included summits of world leaders, meetings of international organizations, presidential nominating conventions, and presidential inaugurations. So the NSSE designation requires federal agencies to provide full cooperation and support to ensure the safety and security of those participating in or otherwise attending the event and the community within which the event takes place. And is typically limited to specific event sites for a specified time frame. So an NSSE places the United States Secret Service as the lead agency in charge of the planning, coordination, and implementation of security operations for the event. And the Federal Bureau of Investigation is then in charge of intelligence, counterterrorism, and investigation of major criminal activities associated with the event. And the Federal Emergency Management Agency is then in charge of recovery management in the aftermath of ter- terrorism, major criminal activities, natural disasters, or other catastrophic incidents following the event. So like the FBI and FEMA, the Secret Service brings in local law enforcement, public safety, and military experts to assist with developing the plan. And they give them special guidance and training to operate within the security plan that they make. So make no mistake about it. It's a team effort. It's all hands on deck. The NSC designation is not a funding mechanism, right? There's no funding out there when you get that designation. And currently, there's no specific federal like stash of money to be distributed to state and local governments within those jurisdictions that NSSEs take place. It's just kind of consumed by and absorbed by every agency that plans to participate. So the Secret Service is at the helm for planning security operations for the Super Bowl. So you can probably anticipate that the same highly trained agents that conduct cybersecurity advances for the President of the United States are on the job in Minnesota and elsewhere to keep us all safe. So to all the Secret Service agents and the FBI agents out there working around the clock this week to keep all of us safe, we thank you for your service. We appreciate you. God bless all of you. And you can bet your butt my kids and I stand up for the national anthem out of respect for you and all of our hero veterans out there who have made enormous sacrifices to to protect all of us. So there's a ton of advice and and a host of awareness campaigns being launched this weekend around this week in honor of Data Privacy Day. And a lot of it comes down to ground ball stuff. It's really ground ball stuff. It's having good hygiene. It's making sure you do the little things that are in your control to make sure that your data is safe, right? So according to the siliconrepublic.com, some of the good tips you can do are the following. You can use encryption whenever possible, including in your chat messages. And there's all kinds of encrypted apps out there. We've talked about them before. Signal, Telegram, WhatsApp, Wicker. That's just a few of them. 
And obviously, there's some are more preferable than others. It depends on what you're, you're using them for. But using one of them is better than texting in the clear, right? So even though, you know, Theresa May, uh, the UK prime minister, just criticized the use of the encrypted apps, uh, specifically Telegram, during her recent speech in Davos last week, but this was a very, but for a very different reason, of course. I think the apps still have a legitimate purpose. And so we've talked about the privacy and security issue before um, regarding encrypted communications. But, and look, no one wants bad guys to find safe harbor in encrypted apps, okay? Uh, but that's for another day, and we're going to keep revisiting that because it's just such a difficult problem. It really is, and we've got to fix it. So but there's other things you can do, too, right? You've got to encrypt your devices. You can use PIN codes or passwords on your device. You know, log out of your apps when you're not using them is always a good idea. Always enable two-factor authentication. I mean, it's, it's a great control to use. It's available on many different apps, including all your social media apps. Make sure you review the privacy settings of all apps on your device. You can use different passwords for different apps. Don't use the same password for all the apps. I mean, this happens a lot when people, it's hard to remember passwords. And, 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 and for this one, password managers seem like the way to go. And we're going to talk, start talking about them because they're becoming a lot more, a lot more popular. And they seem like a very uh, good tool to use to manage uh, all these different passwords that everyone's expected to remember, which seems like it's impossible. So more and more people are using uh, password managers. And, and, and also pay attention to notifications from companies who notify you your information has been compromised. So change your authentication information, especially if you're using the same password for all of your uh, different apps, then, and especially if one's compromised, you need to go change all of those apps as well. Um, look, keep training your mind to avoid phishing emails. This is a big one. This is a really big one. You know, phishing emails is one of the biggest attack vectors uh, for compromises. And, you know, think about using passphrases instead of passwords sometimes. Update your apps. You know, timely patch your systems whenever there's a patch available. And always be sure not to make sensitive transactions on public Wi-Fi systems. So all this great advice, ground ball stuff, okay? Daily hygiene. We should, we should all be practicing these things and making it harder for the bad guys. And we all have to pitch in and do our part. So we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with Dr. Rebecca Wynn with her take on women in technology and what she has to say about global privacy and security by design. Don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Technology is all around us today in practically everything we interact with in our lives. But the hidden or not so hidden piece behind technology is more than likely the software created to operate it. Listen for The Art of Software featuring host Martin Lacey. We'll go behind the scenes of software, how it's written, created, and implemented. You'll get expert insight to the history, evolution, successes, and failures of the software industry. Tune in every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Each week, Larry Sternberg joins Dr. Kim Turnage to explore management issues from culture to discipline in Managing to Make a Difference. Join Talent Plus for 60 minutes of dynamic conversation, including real-life management examples helping you manage teams across the globe. This series airs on Voice America, the business channel, Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. Managing to make a difference every Thursday afternoon with Larry Sternberg and Dr. Kim Turnage. 
We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, Head of Information Security for Matrix Medical and 2017 Cybersecurity Professional of the Year. That's sponsored by the Cybersecurity Excellence Awards, Rebecca Wynn. Rebecca, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you with us. Oh, thank you so much, George, for having me on the show. It's an honor and pleasure to be here. So, Rebecca, you're obviously a very, very successful professional in the cybersecurity space. I mean, you got a ton of experience. You've been extensively published. You've won a ton of awards. You can look her up on LinkedIn. She's got tons and tons of awards. You've been a keynote speaker at dozens of events. You're a great inspiration to other women out there who are thinking about a future career in cybersecurity. So what's, what is your viewpoint, I'm anxious to know, of technology careers in the future, especially as it pertains to women? Oh, that's an excellent question, George. But I do want to take a moment and let the reviewers know, um, the people listening on the cast, that the viewpoints that I'm expressing here are my own viewpoints and should not be inferred as any of my current employers or past employers. Uh, Now that we have that out of the way, technology is absolutely changing the world. So technology careers are lucrative and computing skills are in demand. Um, But there is a massive gender gap in the technology industry. Uh, Let's look at some statistics. And according to the National Center for Women in Information Technology, by about 2024, there's going to be about 1.1 billion, um, excuse me, not billion, million computing-related jobs um, are expected to be out there. But at the current rate, only about 40% or 45% of those jobs would be filled in the United States. And those were were be to people who have a computing or related job. field bachelor's degree. And specifically for the women who are listening, in 2016, 26% of the computing workforces were women. And less than 10% of those were actually women of color. It broke down to 5% were Asian, 3% were African American, and 2% were Hispanic. But a good sign in all that was for bachelor's degrees awarded to women. It was 12% in 2010, and it went to 16% in 2014. So that's a good sign. So there's an upward trend there, at least there's some positive news to take out of this, right? Absolutely. So, but in your opinion, why are the numbers of females in cybersecurity so low to begin with? Like, what's the problem? Well, generally, statistically, proven rule is that males hold three out of four jobs in the technology field, and that's, that's worldwide. Statistics show that women, um, it's being anywhere between 10 to 14% in the United States, but I, I believe that's closer to 8 to 11% at the max. What I've seen in the vast majority who do hold 
what is called a technology job, according to statistics, are mainly in quality assurance, and then that's followed by programmers. And there's many reasons that I see for those low numbers. There's really bias towards women um, as being thought of as not technical. I've seen that and heard that a lot, and I've had to overcome that myself. And most who are technical savvy like myself, we've had to roll an immense boulder up the mountain again and again and again and again and again to where we are today. Also, women leave technology field because of the, the insensitivity in the workplace. It, it can be a hostile cultural environment for women in technology. There's a glass ceiling. And what others really fail to mention is that women generally do not apply for the positions unless they feel that there are 80% um, of those qualifications are in those job posting that they have them. Men, on the other hand, just go for it. They'll apply for anything. I can see hundreds and hundreds of resumes before I even see one woman apply for the position. And, and that's one thing that we just can't blame on men. That's on the women. You just need to apply, apply yourself out there. Um, another key factor out there is there's really a lack of great women role models. I myself just joined LinkedIn a little over a year ago. And one of the reasons why that is I really wanted to be a voice for women and I wanted to show them that they could do it. And it's really um, nice that I actually do have women reaching out to me and they want to be mentored. They ask for advice. They see me at conferences, they read one of my articles, and, and they come and tell me over and over again that when they see women in leadership do those type of things, they know that they can overcome too, and also that you know you're not on an island getting over all these type of hurdles. One conference that I'm on a panelist this year actually recently asked me if I wanted to remove myself from the panel and be at a conference that had more women attending and be on a women in technology panel. Oh, I said heck no. Actually, I said a word stronger than that, but I won't say it on the air. Um, I'm a leader in technology. I go to conferences. I'm a speaker. I'm a panelist. I have a voice that should be heard. And if I'm the only woman there, I don't care. If I'm the only blonde there, I don't care. I want women to know that they can do whatever they set their mind to do and they have a passion for. And that's exact same advice that I would give any man. I think this is great inspiration for women who want to try to get into this field. I mean, so when, when we take a look at this, uh, what, what should be the general strategy in the United States to attract more women into cybersecurity? You said you don't see a lot of women uh, re- you know, handing in resumes for jobs. How do we fix that? What should be the strategy? It's got to be a bigger strategy overall, right? There has to be um, a larger strategy across the industry or else we're not going to win the talent war. What should it be? Uh, well, it is a complicated question. But one of the things I think is that women need to see other women highlighted who have overcome. People like myself. I, I like to see Hollywood get more involved in showing women as the rock stars they really are. Why are all the cyber geniuses portrayed as men? Um, there's women are really rock stars in that area, and they should be, they should have all those movie parts and TV parts as well. Companies should advertise showing strong women workforce and that they that they have in technology. They also need to actually stop the hostile work environment. Um, a report from the Center in Talent Innovation found that women drop out of technology, usually not for family reasons, and I think that's what most people probably would think that they drop out of most jobs for that for. Um, they don't drop out because they dislike the work. Um, to the contrary, they actually really enjoy it. In many cases, they take new jobs in sectors where they can use their technical skills. The report concluded that the workplace conditions, a sense of feeling stalled in one's career, like I explained earlier, and undermining behavior from managers and others in a senior role are really the major factors that women even drop out of technology who, who start out in technology. So this, is, this leads me to my next question. When women look at a career in cybersecurity, is there a large pay gap between males and females in the cybersecurity industry, you think? 
<laughs> oh, absolutely, George. <laughs> Without a doubt. I mean, that's kind of like a no-brainer anymore. Um, professional women uh, generally earn about 73 cents to the dollar versus men. And, and people go, yeah, it's, it's, and some people don't even, can't even really visualize that. But if, when I looked at narrow the gap, that's $333 in a weekly paycheck, which is well over $17,000 a year. It's almost $17,500 a year. That's a lot of money. Yeah, and the site also states that women who work in computer or mathematical occupations, so closer to what I do, make 84 cents to every dollar that man earns. So that's a bit better, but that's still $214 out of a paycheck, which is over $11,000 a year. Just, just think about if you made it over a full lifetime. That's a lot of years. Times it by 40, 40 uh, um, times, and that, oh, I'm not even going to do that math. That's a lot of money. That's over a half a million dollars. And, but if you compare that to overall national average of women, they earn about 80 cents for every dollar a man earns. So, and all those numbers are extremely conservatives. Um, just to give you a more personal case, what I have seen personally in my career is that I consistently earn 15 to 25% less than the men counterparts that have my same jobs, and they have less knowledge and less background than I do. And, and what makes it absolutely worse to me and very frustrating is that in most... Um, cases, human resources that are making the final decision and hiring, they're not budget dollar even when I ask them for it. They won't negotiate at all, whereas they know they're undercutting women and there isn't much we can do about it. But I see them repeatedly give men 5 to 10% more when men ask for it. And even though the United States says it has equal pay laws, I, I haven't seen it personally. I applaud Iceland, who recently just passed a law making it absolutely illegal to pay women less, and they're actually finding companies who do so. The United States needs to start finding companies, and women in human resources need to stop this practice. So we have a bunch of different issues here. We have the, the, the inability to attract women into this sector to begin with. Then we have the pay dis disparity, which you just pointed out. I mean, are we going to be able to solve the talent crisis if we're not able to get more women in cybersecurity and, and, and to solve these problems? Is, are we going to win the talent war without women? Absolutely not, in my opinion. And then the other thing is that research has shown women find it easier than men to multitask and switch between tasks. And those skills are needed in today's fast-paced technology world. So, I mean, so what, what's your experience been like as a woman climbing the ranks in the cybersecurity industry? So you've done this. You've been very successful. You know, you've said that a lot of women reach out to you on, on LinkedIn that looking for a mentor to, to, to help them navigate this environment. I know there are women out there listening to this, this show, and I know they want to hear from a senior like yourself about this. What kind of obstacles have you had to overcome? Well, like many women peers as a chief information security officer, I'm a high achiever and naturally gravitate towards position of leadership. Um, we've had to overcome greater adversity and gender bias and, and based prejudice to achieve similar professional success as our male counterparts. The female security leaders that I have encountered share common traits with me. We're all smart, business savvy, technical, personable, driven to succeed. We're tough negotiators and had a great deal of conviction in our beliefs. Ironically, these are the same skills that our male information security leaders possess. In my opinion, skills that include consensus building, uh, effective communication, and organizational transformation can be classified as, you know, as softer skills. And these skills that are developed, they're developed through experience, maturity, and conflict resolution, and they're not inherent to a gender. One other area that we all share and in more than one time or another, we've been labeled as a bitch, emotional, 
drama queen, weak, and it goes on and on. Whereas the male counterpart, he does exactly the same thing, and he's labeled as a leader, and he gets promoted. <laughs> right, right. So th- there's been, in, in speaking about males and females and, and, and how they interact in the, in the workplace, there's been quite a bit of talk lately about women being harassed in the workplace. So as a, wi- a, w- a woman in a male-dominated field, what's your reaction to what we've seen going on in the industry now? Well, not in this industry spe- specifically, but in the work environment. Oh, if I had a Twitter account, I'd be tweeting and shouting, me too. Um, I, <laughs> I, I've just had it happen to me too many times. And, and what's really sad is every time that I've reported to human resources or a senior female executive, they're not supportive. In each and every case, it has come down to the statement, they're men. Or you must have said something to provoke them. Oh, it's just really, really nauseating um, when that happens. Women, in my experience, have not been very good at supporting other women. And yes, in corporations, there are the mean girls clubs. Ironically, there's always has been at least one human resource person as a club member. Go figure. Uh, I don't know if that's a qualification or not. Um, once I had a male coworker actually accidentally leave me a voice messaging, say, I'm going to freaking kill her. And he didn't use the word freaking. Um, I, when I immediately reported the voicemail and I had a copy of it and I reported immediately to our uh, very, very extremely senior boss of us both, she stated that I must have provoked him somehow and that it was my fault. Really? It's my fault that someone left me a message that they're going to freaking kill me? Um, and nothing was done to that person whatsoever. That um, seems to be true when I speak to other female leaders. They get bullied, treated unfairly, disrespected. And when they report to human resources or a senior female leader, the answer is the same. They're men. So they get a free pass. It's very sad, very frustrating. It's unfair. But I'm really, really glad that I hear these other industries are speaking up and actions being taken. So maybe one day corporate America will change. I have a question about that. So do you see in general, in general, that, you know, you have these incidents of uh, harassment, but when they're reported, are men actually more supportive than women when they get reported? You, you just made the point that, you know, women aren't, haven't been very helpful. Yeah, generally, I think when I do report to men, men will, um, especially if it's a senior leader, will actually take notice a lot quicker um, in most cases that I've seen. Um, I think a lot of them um, would not like to happen to their sister or to their mother. Um, and so I have seen that, that men do take action um, against other men and, and put them in their place a lot quicker than, than women do. Women think you should just, you know, buck up buttercup and put up with it and instead of stopping it. <laughs> right. But I did want to mention that on a similar note, um, before, I do think that women need to be very careful when they do go out to lunch or out to dinner or have drinks at a conference. They, they need to be more aware of their actions and how they can be seen. I recently, for an example, was at a conference with other C-level executives, and a Fortune Top 50 chief information security officer who was a woman was more than drunk. She was just an absolute mess and was telling all, in very loud tones, what she thought of the company, coworkers. That ended up being the gossip of the conference. It didn't matter that some men had done similar. I mean, they had gotten drunk, stumbling around. But that event in and of itself took women back many years. 
our, our glass ceiling is high enough without women pretending they're at a, a college frat party. That's not how you want to get noticed in the industry. Myself, I avoid um, after our events, and I, I recommend women do that. Um, but if you do choose to drink, then I really recommend that it's best that you just have a glass of wine and then go home or go back to your hotel room. Yeah, I mean, I think that's good advice for everyone at corporate events. So, so look, look we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back from, with more from Rebecca Wynn to get her thoughts on global privacy and security design principles after these brief messages from our sponsors. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Private equity firms have over $1 trillion to invest. They are the biggest funding source for growing companies. Why do they reject 98% of deals? How do you get the right deal for your company? Join Kevin Fechtmeyer and his partners on the Deal Team 6 to uncover the next winning deal and avoid the financial landmines. Deal Junkie, Cracking the Private Equity Code, is broadcast live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. In your business, are you on top of your PR game? PR is what tells your story. Whether it's the business itself, key people in your business, or showing your best face to the public, listen for the brand ambassadors. Host Merritt Hamilton Allen with co-host Gary Potterfield will discuss effective presentation ideas, building your personal brand, risk management, crisis communication, and more. Focus your business goals and PR resources. Listen live Fridays at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our guest, Head of Information Security for Matrix Medical and 2017 Cybersecurity Professional of the Year, sponsored by the Cybersecurity Excellence Awards, Rebecca Wynn. Rebecca, for this segment of the show, I would like to talk about global privacy and security design principles because this is a domain of cybersecurity that you have a lot of experience in and that you have a lot of expertise in. So what do you see as an effective way to convince people in organizations and government agencies, everyone in the industry, all across the critical infrastructures to treat people's private data carefully. I mean, what's it going to take to move the dial here? 
Great question. And January 28th was Data Privacy Day. So happy Data Privacy Day, everyone. Um, the approach that I take to, is asking myself, how do I make this important to them? And in most cases, I don't have the authority to make them do anything. The problem is that whenever you have to order someone to do something, they'll do it because they're required by law, regulation, company policy, but they're not going to be happy about it. And it's unlikely to change their behavior long term. So I try to meet with them and try to explain why it's in their best interest in clients' best interests, in employees' best interests, especially when I'm speaking to business leaders. It's very, very important to make it about positive sum, not zero sum. Make it a win-win proposition. It has to be a win for both the organization who's doing the data collection and the data use and the customers that they're serving. It has to be a win for both parties. And when you can present it that way, it gives you a seat at the table, hopefully, you don't say no to the ask. You say yes to the ask. And here are the privacy and security protective measures that I insist you put on them. You, you go with an and instead of a versus. It's not me versus your interests. It's my interest in security and privacy and your interest in the business, whatever you're doing. For example, in a world of zero-sum paradigms, you have one interest versus another. You can only have security at the expense of privacy. In my world, that doesn't cut it. Make it a positive sum, not a zero sum. Make it a win-win proposition. So can you tell us a little bit about privacy by design? I've heard of security by design, and I think that's more of a commonly known term. But what do we mean when we say privacy by design? Another great question. Dr. Ann Kavukian, um, who is recognized as one of the world's leading privacy experts, crystallized privacy by design really after 9-11. Because at 9-11, it became crystal clear that everybody was talking about the vital need for public safety and security. Um, because it was always construed as at the expense of privacy. So if you have to give up your privacy, so be it. Public safety is more important. Well, of course, public safety is extremely important. She did a position piece at the point for the Canadian local national paper, um, the Global and Mail. And the position she took was public safety is paramount with privacy embedded into the process. You have to have both. There's no point in just having public safety without privacy. Privacy forms the basis of our freedoms. You want to live in, in free democratic society. You have to be able to have moments of reserve and reflection and intimacy and solitude. You have to be able to do that. I became a Privacy by Design Ambassador in October 2011, and I was named to the Global Privacy and Security by Design International Council in February 2017, both under Dr. Ann. So data storage costs are getting cheaper as people migrate more and more to the cloud, but still storing a lot of data is very expensive. It's very expensive. So what do you think about companies that do data mining and collect everything, everything in the hopes that they might use it in the future? It drives me nuts. <laughs> It's a big strategic topic. I can tell you that. I mean, this is always how much data, how much data do you keep, and you know, and when what what's the viability of we're actually we're really going to use it? Yeah, and you keep a backup of the 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 backup, right? Uh, you know, you, you need to see what they're asking for and why they really need it. And failure to do that, and I can bet you that it's going to come back to bite you. 
What data does in identifiable form is it attracts hackers. It attracts rogue employees on the inside who will make inappropriate use of the data, sell the data, to do something with the data. You're asking for trouble because keeping data in identifiable form, once the uses have been addressed, it just begs for trouble. So what I always tell people is if you want to keep the data, keep the data, but de-identify it. Strip the personal identifiers. Make sure you have the data aggregated, de-identified, encrypted, something that protects it from this kind of rogue activity. A day seldom goes by that you're not reading that hackers in a company or government, and then the data is everywhere. They're getting into so many databases, it's not only appalling in terms of the data loss, it's embarrassing for the government and company departments who are supposed to be protecting this data. And it fuels even additional distrust on the part of the public. So what I say to companies, do yourself a huge favor. You don't need the data. Don't keep it in identifiable form. You can keep it in aggregate form. You can encrypt it. You can do lots of things. Do not keep it in identifiable form where it can be accessed in an unauthorized manner, especially if it's sensitive data. Oh, and, and don't even get me started on speaking on financial data, healthcare data, and rogue employees. It's ridiculous. The damage is huge. And for patients, and I can tell you I've been a patient in the hospital too many times, the thought that anyone else is accessing my data, it's so personal, so sensitive. And mostly when I speak to senior leaders and executives, they get it. They don't want the trouble. You talked about talks. Let's talk about costs. Once these data breaches happen these days, it's not just lawsuits. It's class action lawsuits that are initiated. It's huge. And, and the damage to the reputation and the damage to your brand, it could be irreparable. Uh, reputation and brand risk, right? So big one. Those are big questions. I mean, we always hear how it takes years and years and years to build your brand and build your reputation. So people recognize it and you have credibility behind it. But then it takes literally seconds for it to get ruined. Oh, absolutely. What's your what's your take on that? I mean, what's your take in terms of how privacy, privacy and data security play into brand and reputation risk? Well, yeah, all that is so true, and we've seen it repeated many, many times um, just this past year alone with the, with the big breaches are out there and, and what's going to happen to the big brands, unfortunately, is have that happen to them. But Dr. Amy years, years ago recommended a great book to me called The Reputation Economy and by Michael Furtick. He, he's an American internet entrepreneur, privacy advocate, and he's known for pioneering the industry of online reputation management. Um, he's the founder, current executive chairman and owner and former CEO of Reputation.com. The book describes exactly how long it takes to build your reputation, how dear it is, and how you should cherish it. And you should go to great lengths to protect it. I really recommend that companies at least have someone read it. Reputation needs to be taken more seriously. And hopefully the lessons learned just over this past six months and 12 months, that companies will take that really seriously and, and really have someone read that book in your company. CEOs should really read it. So I've had a, a, a few guests on uh, this uh, past few months and to talk about some of the recent cybersecurity breaches. And we got into the issue of data ownership. So what is, what is in your opinion, data ownership? And how is it defined differently here in America as opposed to the EU, for instance? Well, in the United States, those who create the data own the data. That's vastly different than the European Union. In the EU, you may have custody and control over a lot of data, your customer's data, but you don't own the data. Also with that custody and control comes enormous duty of care. You have to protect the data, restrict your use of the data to what you've identified to the customer, 
And then if you want to use it for additional purposes, then you have to go back to the customer and get their consent for secondary uses of the data. Now, that rarely happens, and I know that. In Privacy by Design, one of the principles talks about privacy as a default setting. The reason you want privacy to be the default setting, what that means is if a company has privacy as a default setting, it means that they can say to their customers, we can give you privacy assurance from the get-go. We're collecting your information for this purpose. So they've identified the purpose of the data collection. We're only going to use it for that purpose. And unless you give a specific consent to use it for additional purposes, the default is we won't be able to use it for anything else. It's a model of positive consent. It gives privacy assurance. And it gives enormous, enormous trust and consumer confidence in terms of companies that do this. I say to companies, do this because it'll give you a competitive advantage over the other guys. In the recent years, we have seen a growing sentiment that people have just had it. They want control. Many studies have shown that somewhere near 90% of the public, they don't trust the government or business anymore. They feel they don't have control. They want privacy. They don't have it. So you have, well, ever since actually Edward Snowden, you have the highest level of distrust on the part of the public and the lowest level of consumer confidence. So how do we change it? I support an advocate that you change it by telling your customers you're giving them privacy. They don't even have to ask for it. You're embedding it as a default setting, which means it's default setting. Do this test yourself. Ask anyone on the street, would you like to have privacy as a default for free? They'll say yes time and time again. People want to be given privacy assurance without having to go to lengths that they have to go through now to find the privacy policy, search through the terms of services. And many have subservices and have their own policies too. And Google alone has something like 50 plus pages to read. It's so full of legalese, the normal person will not do the reading. Personally, I've done the reading. They should be given privacy assurance as the default. If you would just do this as a private sector company, you would gain such a competitive advantage. You would build trust of your customers and you will have enormous loyalty and you'll attract new opportunities. That's, that's what I think. So what are your what, what what are your global privacy and security by design recommendations for things like wearables or I- IoT innovators and developers what do you, what do you recommend for, uh, for these folks Well the internet of things uh, wearable devices new application developers startups for the most part are clues about security and privacy and I'm really not trying to be disre- disrespectful here at all they're working hard building their applications uh but they're focused on the, the app, and that's all they're talking about and thinking about. When I ask them about security, then they state that they'll do what's the bare minimum to get the checkbox past Google Play or the iOS store. And when I ask them about privacy, they say they've taken care of it. When I press them for specifics, they can't state anything, or they state that some third-party security vendor is doing it. App developers need to build in security and privacy from day one. That's the time to do it. It's it's actually really easy to do. And more times than not, when I speak on this topic to application developers, they don't even know that they're supposed to do it. It's the first time anyone has ever explained it to them. It never appeared on their radar. They're not hesitant or resistant to it. They hadn't thought of it. So one of our biggest jobs in the field is educating, especially the young people, the app developers, the brilliant minds. In my experience, it's not that they resist the messaging. They haven't been exposed to the messaging. That's what we need to do better. 
So I'd like to shift towards the, the, the C-suite. And so what do you think about chief privacy officers? I mean, what are some of the qualities that are required uh, and necessary in a chief privacy officer? It's not just a law background, right? It's, they have to have a whole host of skills, no? Yeah, I think it's a huge, huge mistake um, to restrict your hiring of a, of a chief privacy officer to lawyers. The problem with hiring a lawyer is that they're understandably going to bring a one-sided regulatory compliance approach to it. Um, you do have to be in compliance with whatever legislation is in your jurisdiction, but if that's all you do, it's not enough. With global privacy and security by design, it's all about rising the bar. Doing technical measures such as embedding security and privacy into the design that you're offering into the data architecture. Embedding security and privacy as a default setting. That's not a legalistic term. It's a policy term. It's computer science. You need a much, much broader skill set than law alone. You have to have an understanding of computer science, technology, encryption. You must know de-identification protocols combined with the risk of re-identification framework. Having those combined qualities myself is just one of the reasons that SC Magazine named me Chief Privacy Officer in 2017 award winner. When you look at the big data world, the Internet of Things, they're going to do amazing things with data. Let's make sure it's strongly de-identified and resist re-identification attacks. So my, my, my producer's whispering in my ear again. We're run out of time already. I mean, this went very, very fast. Uh, Rebecca, thanks so much for coming on. And your, the conversation with you is very timely. And I really appreciate your perspective on things. I hope to have you back on the show soon. Thank you. It would be my privilege to do so. Great, great. Thank you. So before we break, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other cybersecurity breaking news at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 